Would you open up your copy of God's Word with me as we continue our uh, reading of chapter of, of the book of Matthew? This morning we're in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a uh, Bible from the back, you'll find this on page 818. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. Verse 10. Then the the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Verse 31, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Verse 33, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. May God bless the preaching of his word. a couple announcements before we get into Matthew 13. Um, Ron, we are thankful that the Lord saw you through that, praising God with you and Martha. Um, just a word about the classes as well that John and Grant and Tom shared about. Those will be starting the 1st of June, so you can be praying for those. Um, we know that there, there's a good percentage of our church that aren't in a class on a Sunday morning, and we'd love for you just to give your whole morning to us and not just the worship service. So if you're if you're not in and you're able to attend one of those, we know various reasons uh, keep certain people from being able to attend, but we'd love to have you join one of those classes um, on Sunday morning starting in June. Next week, we will have the Lord's Supper together in here on Sunday morning. We do that four times a year whenever there's a fifth Sunday, so you can look forward to that as well. We'll also be starting a new sermon series in June. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of Matthew for the summer. We're going to be doing sort of an evangelistic sermon series. It's called Skeptic, Answering Ten Questions or Ten Objections to the Christian Faith. And what we want to do is really deal with some of the major objections that people have to Christianity. When we looked at our calendar this summer, we're just thinking about what God's doing in our church. We just see a lot of evangelism and mission work going on. For instance, Will Smith's getting ready to come back to Japan. We're getting ready to have our Memorial Day picnic, which is an outreach event. We have missionaries coming home to visit the Dames and the Baldwins. We have reports that we'll be hearing from them. We've got our VBS outreach. We've got the up and out youth trip to DR. We've got a lot of stuff going on where we're trying to get the gospel to people. In our church, we, we as pastors feel like that our church needs to be equipped, especially in our day and age, to evangelize and to do so with great greater wisdom as our culture increasingly trends toward being de-churched and unchurched, especially among a younger generation. And 1 Peter 3.15 encourages us to be able to make a defense for the faith, not just to be able to preach the gospel, but actually be able to also answer objections that people might have. I was listening to uh, an interview recently with Robbie Zacharias. Many of you may know him. He's a 
pretty world-renowned apologist and defender of the Christian faith and teaches a lot and preaches a lot in various places all around the world. And as he's observed over the last several years, he says the church has done a good job of, of making the teaching of the Bible interesting. Not that we need to make the teaching of the Bible interesting. He's, the Bible's always interesting. But it's rather showing the relevance of the text and showing the relevance of the truth to people. He says we've done a good job with that. We've also done a good job with inspiring people. He said, but if you have an interesting and inspiring presentation only, you leave off the life of the mind, which is the intellectual dimension of our faith. And Christ has called us to love the Lord with all of our minds as well. And so he says that there's a, an aspect of our message that has been lost or suffered the most. It's the intellectual aspect. And I would agree with that just from interacting with lots of people in my own life. That there's not a lot of patience for um, thoughtfulness. They, they, there's a lot of interest in immediate relevance and inspiration, but not a lot of patience for deep rootedness. And if you're going to make it to, for the long haul in the Christian life, you've got to dig some deep, deep roots. You have to go down and know that at the bottom of your faith, there is, there is substance there, that there is reality there. And it's not just wish so, hope so. But it's deep. And so we hope to be able to, to present that to you over the course of the summer. Please be praying for that. We certainly are and praying that it will be fruitful for all of us as we seek to engage our neighbors, family, friends, and the lost with the gospel of Christ. Just a quick review before we get into Matthew 13 of where we've been. Chapters 1 through 4 describe who Jesus is. He comes on the scene. As we get into Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus begins his public ministry, we see what Jesus is doing. And what he's doing is he is declaring and demonstrating the kingdom of God. He is preaching and teaching and describing what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God and also is manifesting the compassion and power of the kingdom of God to people. So he's described in the first four chapters. He is declaring and demonstrating the kingdom in chapters 5 through 9. And then we get to chapter 10, and Jesus begins handing off responsibility for what he's been doing to his disciples. He begins delegating it. So the message that he's been proclaiming and the deeds that he's been doing, he now passes on to his newly minted 12 disciples to carry out the same kind of kingdom work that has been modeled for them by the king. Well... As Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 10, don't expect everybody to receive you. Just because you're showing compassion and love, you're also preaching a message that's very divisive. So recognize that you will be despised. And so in chapters, chapter 10 and chapter 11, Jesus begins describing some of the misunderstanding and the apathy that is going to characterize many of Jesus' hearers and the hearers of the disciples. And then in chapter 12... As we saw last week, the simmering opposition to Jesus begins to boil over. Jesus has knocked down, drag out conflicts with the religious leaders of the day over Sabbath observance. And then beyond being merely a sharp theological dispute, this proves to be the turning point of the book. Because in response to these, these uh, conflicts, the Pharisees have now resolutely decided, according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, that Jesus is not from God. And they should take counsel together to destroy him. Now Jesus starts telling some stories in Matthew 13. That's the context for these parables. I've got three threads I want to tease out of Matthew chapter 13 this morning. They are the sower, the secret, and the separation. 
We're going to try to summarize the whole chapter in about the next 30 minutes or so, 30, 35 minutes. Under the sower, the secret, and the separation. Let's start with the sower. Matthew chapter 13, as Pastor Ted mentioned a little bit earlier in the service, has seven parables. A parable is a practical story. It's designed to illustrate some spiritual truth. And all of these seven parables are organized by length and theme. I want you to just look at your Bible here in Matthew 13 and, and notice a couple of things. There's one main parable that leads off the whole chapter. I hope you're familiar with it. It's called the parable of the sower, also called, known as the parable of the four soils. And this big parable is then followed by a question and answer time with the disciples, where the disciples ask, why are you speaking to them like this? We'll talk about why in just a moment. And they ask us why he's speaking to them in parables, and he gives them a lengthy answer by quoting from Isaiah in the middle of the chapter. And then to complete this first part, Jesus unpacks and explains what the parable of the sower is all about in verses 18 through 23. So he gives them a parable. The disciples ask why he's doing that. He explains it to them, and then he explains the purpose of the parable and what the parable means. Then, right after that, right after the explanation, the remaining parables come in two sets of three. The wheat and the weeds parable, the mustard seed, and the leaven, all are one longer parable followed by two shorter ones followed by an explanation. So you'll notice if you're just looking at your headings in the Bible, chapter 13, verse 24 starts the parable of the weeds. That goes up to chapter, or verse 30. Then verses 31 through 32 is a small parable, small parable, and then 33 is a small parable. So you've got a long one and then followed by two short ones. And all three of these parables hang together under the same theme. And it's the theme of spreading or growth. How the kingdom of God grows. Then, Jesus does another three parables. But we have the same situation in reverse. He starts with two shorter parables and then gives a longer parable. So we start with two the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. Those are very short parables. They're about one or two verses each. Then that's followed by a longer story called the parable of the net. And that's again explained even as the wheat and weeds was explained. So once again, it's remarkable that these three parables hang together with a similar theme. And that theme is the worth or value of the kingdom of God. So if you had to summarize what the, what the parables at their essence are about, it's about how the kingdom of God spreads, and how to measure how valuable the kingdom of God is. Now, as we, so we, what we have here is a highly structured group of parables, an opening parable about a sower of seed and its interpretation in relationship to the kingdom, two other major parables about the separation of good and bad and their interpretation as the end of the age when the kingdom comes, and then four little parables about the hiddenness and great value of the kingdom of God. And that's sort of what we're going to unpack, those sort of three major themes. So here's the first theme, the sower. Jesus begins by telling a parable of a, of a man who goes out to sow seed. Let's read that parable together in Matthew 13, beginning at verse 3. And he told them many teachings, many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed some seeds, fell, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. 
Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now Jesus goes on and explains what the meaning of that parable is, starting in verse 18 when he gets his disciples together. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty and in another thirty. So what we see is Jesus is the sower. The message that he is preaching is the seed and there are various responses to that message. The parable is not primarily, this is important, the parable is not primarily an exhortation to be a fruit-bearing Christian. It's an explanation about why Jesus and the disciples are getting the mixed response they're receiving. So why is it that when the disciples are going out and preaching and when Jesus is going out and preaching, something like three-quarters of them are responding in a non-favorable way? He's getting like a 75% failure rate. Why are people not receiving the kingdom and becoming disciples? I mean, you're the Messiah. You're God's promised one. You're supposed to come and show us the way of the Lord. Why does nobody want to hear it? Notice there's a huge multitude that is gathering. Adam read those verses for us, the very first verses of the chapter. Jesus goes out of the house. He sits beside the sea. Great crowds gathered about him so that he had to get into a boat and sit down. And the whole crowd's on the beach. So this is a huge crowd. And Jesus is like, most of this is all fake. Most of this is not a true work of God. Let me, let me apply that briefly. Because I think this is, we learn something about Jesus and what it means to follow him and what it means to receive him here. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, lend me your ears. Something really important is being taught about ministry here. We're all called to ministry. We just get our paychecks routed differently. We're all called to be full-time ministers of Jesus Christ. We are called to be sowers of the message of the kingdom in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. We live lives of self-sacrifice, serving others, ministering grace, proclaiming the gospel. But let me tell you a few things about how that's going to go so we can set our expectations realistically. We live in a culture that's like microwave, like everything has to come super fast. And what Jesus is calling us to do as ministers of the gospel is to take a real long haul view of ministry. We have to take our analogies about mission and ministry and how those things are going to go from the agricultural world, not from the corporate world. The agricultural world teaches us that the conditions of the soils determine the fruitfulness of the crop. We can't control soil conditions. All we can do is sow seed. So one of the things we learn here is that we need to be committed to the little things over the long haul, faithfulness, prayerfully dependent upon the spirit and provide the necessary conditions for a crop. 
That's very important. Parents, young parents, parents with young kids at home like myself, grandparents who are trying to influence grandchildren. Think about that. Little faithfulness, long obedience in the same direction, sowing seed for years, for decades. We have to have a much longer view of what faithfulness looks like and what expectations can and should be. Let me say a word just to... I think, I think you can't leave this parable without asking this question. We have a number of guests with us, and we're thankful for you for you being here. So when I, I think you have to ask this question. Everybody should ask this question in this room. What kind of soil am I? You're one of four, according to Jesus. Those four types are, you have a hard heart, which means, I mean, you could be here, but most people with hard hearts won't come within, uh, a, a, you know, of miles of a church building. Um, that's not necessarily always the case, but just generally, if you're hard heart, you're just stubborn, resistant, don't want to hear it. And that's what Jesus describes as the seed that's sown along the path. It doesn't even hit the soil. There's the superficial heart where Jesus talks about the seed that's sown on rocky ground and immediately it's received with joy, but then it goes away. It has no lasting, enduring quality to it. I'm reminded of a story about George Whitfield, famous revivalist preacher during the Great Awakening, preaching all over the place to huge crowds, and people were always going up to George afterward, especially ministers and Christians who were who were thrilled with people responding to the gospel, and people would respond to George's preaching. People would come to him and say, George, how many were saved? He would say almost frequently, we'll see in a few years. We'll see in a few years. Because he knew very well that when he was preaching, he's going to get superficial emotional reactions. People are going to be crying. They're going to be like, I want my life changed. Oh, I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to stop doing this. I need to quit sinning. I need to follow Jesus. And he's like, yeah, but that might go away pretty quick, like next week. So he, he realized that you, there would be superficial responses and that it would take time. Now, what he, his point of saying that is not these people, they got to earn their salvation, so we got to give them a couple years to see if they're really earning it. No, it just the point is that it would take time for true salvation to be demonstrated. It's going to take some time to see that it wasn't just an emotional, visceral, you know, kind of in-the-moment reaction. A third kind of heart's a divided heart. And this is one that I'm convinced of is one of the main things in our prosperous West that is the most dangerous and that keeps people from Jesus all over the place is because it's not so much the hard heartedness or the superficialness, but it's the or superficiality, but it's the division of the heart, the heart that has multiple loves within it that keeps it from a whole souled wholehearted embrace of discipleship with Jesus Christ. Jesus defines it as the person who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. The U.S. is full of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And those things choke the word out. Then there's the fruitful heart. The heart that hears the word and bears fruit and it may be different from person to person, but there is fruitfulness there. Jesus says there's some 30, some 60, some 100. But the point is there's fruit that comes from that life over the long haul that manifests great um, faithfulness to Jesus and adherence to his word and the fact that his word has taken root deeply in their life. So what kind of soil are you? 
Let me give you a word of encouragement here, especially in light. I mentioned that our missionaries are coming home this summer. And one of the things that's important when they come home on furlough is that we be an encouragement to them as the church. If you've been keeping up with their emails, you know they have faced some hard days. The Dames and the Baldwins have had hard days. And these are the kinds of things we need to be, we need to be aware of as a church and encourage them along these lines when they come home and strengthen their hands in God. So let's remind them when they come home of God's power. Let's say that despite there's, there, there being an adversary out there whose, whose whole purpose and determination and orientation is to rip the word out of people's hearts. That along with the numerous pressures and difficulties that their labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's let's remind them to keep sowing seed. Don't stop. And then pray with them that the Lord of the harvest would bring forth fruit. Don't be surprised that as we sow the seed, we're going to meet a whole pendulum of human responses. Everything from indifference and apathy to hatred and persecution. And as we go, we should expect a lot of failure. And we know that every fruit-bearing disciple, and here's the encouragement, that every fruit-bearing disciple produced as a result of our sowing efforts far outweighs any loss. God has just used you to alter someone's eternity. That is worth a thousand rejections. Heaven rejoices and so should we over one sinner who repents. And so we also need to be very careful how we measure kingdom advancement. It advances slow, according to the leaven and mustard seed parables that are in this chapter. But it grows over time. And so we need to encourage them to stay the course, stay faithful, keep praying, keep sowing, and seek to strengthen their hands in God as they sow in the places that God has called them. So that's the sower. And that would be my encouragement to you along those lines. Let's look at, the, look at the second thread here. The secret. The secret. Jesus has a secret in Matthew chapter 13. He has a secret that's only reserved for his people. So he's got a secret for us. And this is a great secret. It's a wonderful secret. And I'm gonna, he's going to tell it to us. Jesus is telling this parable about the four soils. And his disciples come on the heels of that. And they're really confused. Look at verse 10. They said... Why do you speak to them in parables? Why would they ask that question? Because Jesus hasn't been speaking in parables before. He hasn't been telling these stories that are illustrating some sort of spiritual truth. You remember what we've read in Matthew 5 so far, or Matthew all the way up through chapter 7? Jesus is doing some explicit teaching. I mean, he takes the whole Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and sort of unpacks them. I mean, that's explicit teaching. And yet, as he comes into Matthew chapter 13, he starts telling these stories. And it it looks like things were really moving. I mean, John starts preaching. Jesus comes out to the water. He gets baptized. He calls the disciples to himself. He starts teaching crowds. He begins to heal. He sends the disciples out. I mean, kingdom's coming. Drastic changes look to be right around the corner. But Jesus is not being met with universal acclaim and receptivity. And John the Baptist is even confused. But also the disciples are confused with his method here. 
They're confused with why is he teaching them this way? They need to hear the unfiltered, unadulterated word of God. They need to be called to repentance. Remember what John was doing? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's do this. And Jesus is telling these little agricultural stories. Like Jesus, we got bigger things to, you know, bigger fish to fry than farming. You know, why are you telling mustard seed, leaven, weeds, wheat? What's the deal? Why all of a sudden are you speaking so cryptically with such vague metaphors? Well, verse 11 explains. Look what Jesus says to his disciples. He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and and will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What's going on here? Jesus is saying that his teaching in parables is not only designed to reveal the truth of God, but also to conceal the truth of God. The parables, then, are a form of judgment. They are spoken so that people who have hard hearts will never understand. At the same time, Jesus offers a word of blessing to his disciples. Look at verse 16. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your eyes for they, ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying to his disciples, listen, the conditions that I'm preaching in are like Isaiah's day. Remember what happened with Isaiah? Isaiah 6, that's where this quote is from. Isaiah sees a great vision of the Lord, the glory filling the temple. He's broken, he's contrite over his sin, he cries out to God for mercy, a a tong grabs a coal from the altar and brings it, touches Isaiah's lips, he's clean, he says, here am I, send me, I want to go, and he says, God says, all right, I'm going to put you in ministry, go and preach to people that are not going to even listen to you, go. I mean, it's such a contrast. He he sees the glory of the Lord, the greatness of the Lord. He's he's revived. He's renewed. He's broken. He's changed. He's transformed. He wants to give his life to, to, the, to the Lord that he's just seen. He wants to go on mission. That's what happens when we meet Jesus. We want to tell people about him. We want to get him to other people. That's one of the greatest evidence that you've been saved. You desire the salvation of others. And what happens is God tells him, listen, you're going to go, but nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody. Because of the condition 
of people's spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and spiritual hearts, as he just said in the parable of the soils. So let me apply this to us, brothers and sisters. You know what? This is one thing we should take away from reading something like this. We should be absolutely amazed that we're saved. Because our condition is just like that. We have eyes, but we don't see. We have ears, but we don't hear. We have hearts, but we don't receive. Not by nature, not by sinful human nature that we're born into the world with, inherited from our father Adam. So we should be incredibly thankful people because our eyes have been blessed. Our ears have been blessed, which means that's a gift of God to you. You didn't save yourself. If you had any interest in Christ, it's because Christ had an interest in you first. That's the only reason people get interested in Jesus. It's because Jesus got interested in them. That's it. That's what he teaches right here. We know that our hearts, if our hearts are believing right now, if you are sitting in here as a believer, as one who sees Jesus and knows Jesus and recognizes that apart from him, you'd be all three other soils. But you're thankful that he made you to be a fourth soil hearer, that you actually heard the word and you actually responded and you actually believe, you know, that's marvelous grace. It's marvelous grace. It was not the product of your reasoning. It was the product of God's revelation in your life. We did not first choose God. We should be amazed every day that we wake up with any love for Jesus at all. And any desire to submit to him and follow him at all. And you know what this desire should do? You know what this truth should do? It should produce in us a profound humility. A profound humility. Because we know that everything that we've received has been a gift from Jesus. The salvation that we've received, the knowledge that we've received, the, 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 the grace that we've received. I mean, that's what Jesus says, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets. To you it has been given to know. To them it has not been given to know. We should be profoundly humble and amazed. I mean, I remember when I first got a hold of this. It wrecked me for like two weeks. Totally wrecked me. Could hardly go to class at Murray State. When my friend sat down in the hallway and was like, Mark, have you ever read Romans 9? And I got a big vision of a great God who is sovereign and in control over everything, including my fickle will and life. And the only reason I had any interest in Jesus whatsoever is because God acted upon my stubborn, obstinate, hard heart. And opened it to receive Christ. And that wrecked me. Because I knew a God like that you don't play with. And I just got ripped out of the center of the universe. And that's a painful thing to do. It is painful to get ripped out of the center of the universe. Even as a Christian. To get ripped out of the center of the universe. That's what happened. But I'll tell you what. It set my feet on a firmer foundation than you could ever possibly have. You know why? Because it means that God wanted me. God acted upon me. God desired me as his child. That means in my most wayward, up and down moments of my life, that at the end of it, I know that I'm a citizen and a child of God because that's the way God wanted it to be. 
And so when I'm going through my worst trial and my hardest difficulties and my darkest days, I know that I was a child of God, according to John 1, born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. And that gives me comfort. And that gives should give you comfort, believer. Is that God had you on his heart and has you on his heart. So that's the sort of humility it should produce in us and it should characterize us. And brothers and sisters, this has to be, this has to be our posture toward the world as well. This sort of humility. We, the, the world must got, not get a whiff of, whiff from us that we're the ones who did this thing. I mean, does the world get the whiff from you that you're a miracle of grace? Or does the world get a whiff from you that you're like a self-reformed, really good person and you really put yourself together really well? I mean, the whiff that should come from our life when we're interacting with the world is, wow, that person really believes that, like, they're, they're just saved totally by God's mercy. Not that they like did a did a really great job, which means that when well-meaning people who love us and recognize the changes in our life come to us and say things like, hey, I'm really recognizing some change. Man, you've really changed. Let me tell you why. I don't want you to misunderstand this. It was not because I'm so great. It's because God had mercy on me. I was hard-hearted and stubborn and rebellious in my morality or immorality. And God intervened. I want you to know that. Don't go around believing that I changed myself. So this knowledge should produce humility in us, but it should also make us patient with people and long-suffering with people. Here's what I see too often happening, and this, this regards our public witness, church. I see a lot of angry, outraged Christians these days, social media especially. I mean... We are ready to boycott something at the drop of a hat. We are ready to speak out against something. And there is, listen, there is certainly a time and a place for such things. Okay? I'm not, I'm not undermining that. But I'm just saying that Christians should not be marked by outrage. John Newton, I'm going to pull a old wiser pastor than me up here and he's going to address us for a second. He was a minister. Okay, author of Amazing Grace, former slave trader. That brother knew what it meant to be rescued. <laughs> that brother knew he was a mar- he was he was marked by the marvelous grace of Jesus. He knew that. He knew that he couldn't become slave trading seaman who was just crazy and 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 dedicated to his own lust to being transfer transferred into a pastor and and preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he he would answer letters a lot. And one of the letters that you should read and find online is type in John Newton on controversy. John Newton on controversy. And you'll find this letter. And it was, a, it was written um, by a minister writing to, uh, to John Newton who was going to write. He was seeking John's counsel about how he should write a letter that was criticizing a fellow minister for his lack of faithfulness to the Bible. So it sounds like a very noble thing, right? So he, there's this minister who's writing to John and asking, hey, I need to know how to, how to write to this other pastor who's veering away from orthodoxy. He's not teaching the gospel anymore and I need to, I need to answer him back. So I need to get involved in some controversy here. How do you encourage me to do that? I just want to read you a selection from John's letter as he responded to him. He gives some sage counsel here. Here's the first one. He says, he replies as follows. 
Quote, as to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during, or we could say keyboard. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, that you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him, and such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. Isn't that good? Pray for them first. Pray. Pray. Don't just start writing. Then he says, If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable here. He says, Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you and expects that you should show tenderness to others for a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you'll meet in heaven, and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. What a good pastor. Now, now he says, now to the unconverted person, if you, if you think he's not a Christian, okay, so if you think he's a Christian, deal gently with him. Remember, you're going to heaven together. Be patient. Okay, so unconverted person. But if you look upon him as an unconverted person, it's right behind me. Great. Thanks for doing that, ABT. In a state of enmity against God and his grace, a supposition which, without good evidence, you should be very unwilling to admit. That's a good word, too. He is a more proper object of your compassion than your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does. That's what Jesus is teaching right here. But you know who has made you to differ. If God in his sovereign pleasure had so appointed you, you might have been as he is now. And he, instead of you, might have been set for the defense of the gospel. You were both equally blind by nature. Of all people who engage in controversy, we who are called Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to the exercise of gentleness and moderation. If indeed they who differ from us have a power of of changing themselves, if they can open their own eyes and soften their own hearts, then we might with less inconsistency be offended at their obstinacy. If you write with a desire of being an instrument of correcting mistakes, you will, of course, be cautious of laying stumbling blocks in the way of the blind or of using any expressions that may exasperate their passions, confirm them in their principles, or thereby make their conviction, humanly speaking, more impractical. In other words, when you're interacting with them, you might just shut them off from listening to the gospel. So be very careful in how you proceed. Because you're going to confirm their prejudice against Christians. They already think we're judgmental. So by doing that and by behaving in that way, he said, think about how you're going to be received, not just the truth you represent, but think how people are going to receive it. We need to be careful. And that, and that, that, what, what, what's at the heart of that? What's at the bottom of that? Humility is at the bottom of that. Humility that's produced by the fact that everything I know and everything I've gained is a gift of grace. If we operate that way, we'll be fine. We will manifest the humility and brokenness before the world that it desperately needs to see in the church. Because I know that the church hasn't earned all of its reputation from the world as far as the way the world thinks about it. We haven't earned everything that we get. But I think sometimes we have earned this. That we're impatient, that we're critical, and we're quick, quick, to, quick to jump. We need to be steady and faithful and humble 
in the face of opposition and difficulty, just like our Savior was. Thirdly and finally, and this will go quicker, the separation, the separation. I've already referred us to Isaiah 6 in verses 13 through, uh, or sorry, chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, where Jesus quotes from Isaiah here, and I've already explained the background of that. So, but what is crystal clear from this is that as Jesus is teaching these parables, there is a great separation happening, all right, between believers and unbelievers, between those who are receiving his message and being disciples of his and those who are rejecting his message. Just Let's just look at a couple of verses here. First of all, the end of the parable of the weeds in verse 24, or chapter, beginning at verse 24, going down through verse 30. Let's just read verses 27 and following. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did we, you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then he explains it. Verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That's the earth, by the way. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there is going to be a great separation. He underscores this in the parable of the net in verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the parable of the wheat and the weeds and the parable of the net all anticipate a future time. The good seed represents believers, the weeds represent the unbelievers, and the harvest is the future judgment, the terrifying day of condemnation for the wicked and a day of triumphant celebration for the righteous. I just want to say a word here about this. Let's, let's, let's read the response of these people to the parables first, and then I want to make an application Look at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did these men get this wisdom and these mighty works? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. How are people viewing Jesus? These are obviously weeds. They're responding negatively to Jesus. But what's underneath their response? Why are they responding negatively to Jesus? They just see him as a human being. He's just the guy they've known and been around their whole life. Now, do you ever think that if you had only been around Jesus and heard him like this, that you would have been one of his disciples? These are people that grew up 
in his hometown and rub shoulders with him in that small town day after day after day after day after day. They knew his mom. They knew his dad. They knew his family. Do you ever think that if you'd only lived around Jesus and saw the kinds of miracles that he did that you'd be indifferent about him? Look right here. The people that are closest to Jesus are the people that are most indifferent to him. Now, I don't know about you, but that scares me. That scares me. That, and, and I especially want to say a word to young people here who have grown up in church. This, this passage is written for you. You are in a particularly blessed and a particularly dangerous situation. Because you're surrounded by Jesus. And it's very easy when you're surrounded by Jesus to grow incredibly familiar with Jesus. And when you're familiar with Jesus, familiarity breeds contempt. After watching many kids grow up in this church and live an indifferent life to Jesus, they're not hostile to Christ. They're not going out like recruiting, joining atheist clubs and recruiting and coming to picket our services. They're sweet kids. They're friendly. They're industrious. They're hardworking. They're just really indifferent to Christ. And as a result of that, my heart has been broken, recognizing that truth. And I sometimes wonder in my, in my weaker moments, wow, I'm, I'm so thankful I didn't grow up in the church. I'm so thankful I didn't grow up in the church. I'm so thankful I was raised in an unbelieving home. And the first time I heard the gospel, I believed it immediately because it's the greatest news of my whole life. I never heard anything like that before. Now, that's not to say, the Lord is often pleased to save tons of people from Christian homes. That's the way he designed it to function for the most part. Ephesians 6 is in the Bible for that reason. That we would have hope that through our faithful instruction and teaching of our children that they would come to embrace Christ. And we have, I would argue, many more testimonies of that happening than the latter. Praise God for such mercy that he's often pleased to save our kids. And bring them into the kingdom. But it's just something we have to talk to them about. We've got to talk to them about that. That that's going to be a particular temptation for them. Is that they're going to grow indifferent to Christ. Because they're so surrounded and swimming in it. Now the great thing is that this chapter is still true. And I know that even as I preach this to some of you parents. That your hearts are breaking. Because you have younger adults right now. that Kids who grew up in this church that are broken. And my heart hurts for you as a pastor. And I don't want this sermon to add one ounce of condemnation to you. Zero. My, my, my goal is to hold out to you the truth that's in this chapter. That if God can change your heart, he can change theirs. And never stop praying, never stop loving, take the long view, agriculture, 50 years. 50 years. And just keep sowing faithfully with your tears and your prayers and your love and your gracious reception and your faithful speaking. Do all of that and pray that God would use it.
But don't give up. Don't give up because this this passage is true. This passage is true. And that it can be given to them also to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You've sowed a lot of kindling over the years, laid a lot of kindling on that heart. Now let's pray God would send fire. But I just want to issue a word of warning for those who are indifferent to Jesus right now. And your life is going super well. Like it's even getting better. I don't ever want you to interpret or misinterpret, I should say, God's patience toward you with God's acceptance of you. Don't ever mistake that God is patient with me as an unbeliever and I continue to live and I'm, and I continue to do what I'm supposed to, and I don't get any, any car accidents and I don't have cancer and I don't have any problems and I don't lose my job and nothing really bad happens. I mean, I'm just coasting through life. It's going good. Sweet. Don't ever mistake God's patience with God's acceptance. Payday someday. So I would encourage you along these lines to think about and contemplate your condition. You can have the world's riches. You can have the world's acclaim. You can have the world's acceptance. And nevertheless, you can have, like John 3.36 says, the wrath of God abiding over you as you do so. And I want you to think about your future. I want you to think about your life a thousand years from now. I want you to think about your life 10,000 years from now. I want you to think about your life a hundred million years from now. And where you will be and what you will be doing. Let John Bunyan tell you. He describes the awful place of hell that awaits those who continue to disobey the Lord and not Receive Christ and follow him. He says, in hell you shall have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with you. While you're in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to you makes you tremble and your hair ready to stand up upright on your head. But, oh, what will you do when not only the supposition of the devils appearing but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with you howling, roaring and screeching in such a hideous manner that you will you will not be even at your wits end and ready to run stark, stark mad again for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be no comfort. But here is your misery. You are here forever. When you see what an innumerable company of howling devils you are among, you will think this again. This is my portion forever. When you have been in hell so many thousand years as there are stars in the sky or drops in the sea or sands on the seashore, you will have to live there forever. Oh, this one word, forever, how it will torment your soul. That's what's awaiting. That's what's serious. And my goal is to shake you out of indifference. If you're indifferent right now to Jesus, I want you to, I want you to feel shaken out of that indifference by the reality of a coming judgment that is absolutely inevitable. But let me comfort in with a word of comfort and worship team, if you'll, music team, if you'll come forward, I'm going to wrap up here. I want to comfort you with this truth right now. That this morning, if you're in here and you've been at all touched or convicted by this message, I want to encourage you to let go this morning of your life and give it to Jesus.
Let go of the guilt and shame of sin. Leave behind the pleasures, pursuits, and possessions of this world. And find in Christ a king who is worth living and losing everything for. Receive his mercy. Submit to his good and gracious mastery of your life. You will lose no freedom in submitting to Christ. You will find a life that is more liberating and free than you ever dreamed. Don't harden your heart toward him. Don't toy superficially with him. And don't give him token affection in the midst of your greater loves. Give him all your heart and all your life. And you can do that right there in your seat, even as we're closing and singing. And I invite you to do that. And then tell somebody about it. Tell one of us. Tell a pastor. Tell a friend. Christian, I want to encourage you with this in closing. You have found, when all around the world tells you, you know, we we have to sometimes be tied to the mass, so to speak, to use the old Greek analogy of the siren song, where the the, the sirens are calling out to the hills, and 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 he says, tie me to the mast. We have to be tied to the mast of Jesus and his love to keep from listening to this crazy voices that we hear around us that say that the Christian life is a sad life, that it's a, it's a terrible life. Listen, you have found the pearl of great price. Or should I say the pearl of great price has found you? It's both. It's both. You have found the treasure hidden in the field that is worth, according to Matthew 13, 44, going and selling everything you have to buy that field. That's what conversion is. Conversion means seeing Jesus as someone worth losing everything for. That's a Christian. Everyone else is a false Christian. A true Christian says, Jesus, you're my all. Jesus, you're my everything. Jesus, I hold to you. If I have to lose everything else, please don't take you away from me. In Christ and his kingdom, we have more than we ever would give up. Think of Paul, Philippians 3.8. I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that derives from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. He knew what it was to gain for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Philippians 1.21. Acts 20.24, 20, he said it again. I do not count my life as valuable or precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that God has given me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Psalm 73.24 and 25, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I go and appear before God? My heart and my flesh cry out for you, for the living God. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Christ is supremely satisfying in such a way that if we lose everything on this earth, but we get the kingdom of heaven and the king, we have a happy trade-off. As Augustine said, He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing.
Let's stand together as we close in prayer and song. Father, how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home because we long to see your churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace, even as we do so right now. In Jesus' name, amen.